0: to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 28, as we follow along with today's lesson.
1: Now he said, you've heard that I said unto you that I'm going away, and I'm coming again, Unto you If you loved me You would have rejoiced Because I said I'm going to the Father For the Father is greater than I If you loved me Jesus said you would have rejoiced I told you I'm going away if you, if you loved me You would have rejoiced Because I told you I'm going to the Father The Father He said is greater than I I think Of our loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord. Who walked with Jesus and are now gone to be with the Lord. Why do we weep? If we love them, we would rejoice because they've gone to the Father. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. I've told you I'm going to the Father. Why should you weep over that? We weep because we're going to miss them. We weep because they have given such beautiful input into our lives. We're going to miss that. They've loved us. They've accepted us. And they've added so much to us, enhanced our lives by their love and by their friendship. We're going to miss that. And thus we sorrow. But we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. But we sorrow because we're thinking about ourselves and what we have lost. And so... When we think of what they've gained, they're in the presence of the Lord. If we loved them, we would rejoice. So often when a young person is is killed in an accident, we say, oh, what a shame. His whole life was in front of him. (laughs) If he's walking with Jesus, his whole eternity is in front of him. Not in the corruption of this world. He's not going to have to go through the, the, the sorrows and the turmoils of this world. If you loved him, you rejoice. My father is greater than I. Uh, a, again, a, a term that does create some theological debate. Um, I believe that Jesus more or less pointed out that he was equal with the father. He made such statements as, I and the Father are one. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And and throughout the Bible, there is that teaching of the equality. He who was in the beginning with God and thought it not something to be grasped, to be equal with God. But right now, Jesus is in a body. And in a body, he is experiencing the limitations of this body. And in this state of being in a body, being subject to the will of the Father, having submitted himself to the will of the Father, to come and dwell in a body in order that he might give his life for the sinner's. In this limited condition of a human body, the Father is greater than I. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. Now, in the next chapter, he's going to pray, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world ever existed. I, I, I want to return to that place, and, 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 he, he, and he did. But while he's in the limitations of a body, he said, the Father is greater than I And now he said, I've told you before it comes to pass. I've told you in advance, I've, I've prophesied to you what's going to take place. That when it comes to pass, you might believe. And that is really the purpose for prophecy in the Scripture. It's one of the strongest apologetics that we have that the Bible is inspired by God. It is uh, a proof that God dwells outside of time and space. The transcendent God outside of time and space. So that he fills all and in all. Jesus, by ascending to the Father, is no longer limited by space to one area so that he is with us here tonight. For he said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. So Jesus is with us here tonight. But he is also with the other congregations throughout this time zone who happen to be meeting right now and are gathered in his name. So he's not just limited here. It, because he is here, it doesn't mean he can't be over in the other side of Santa Ana in another congregation. He is the transcendent Lord. He is again outside of the limitations of space and time in that eternal. So now he fills all, the whole world, and he is in all. He hears the cries of those people who are crying out to him uh, over in Russia, over in China, over in Europe, all over the world. He's with them as he is with us. And so I'm going back to the Father, going back to the glory, going back to that state of um, transcendency uh, so that he might fill all and in all. And so I've told you before it comes to pass, so that when it comes to pass, you might believe that the fulfillment of my predictions, you will know that I am indeed the Son of God, sent by God to redeem the world. And herein, or hereafter, I'm not going to talk much with you. Now, chapter 17, uh Or uh, tells us of his talking with the Father We have his words, final words In chapters 15 and 16 But uh, they're getting ready now To leave the place of the Supper They've had the conversation And they're now going to walk From uh, the place of the uh, Last Supper Which traditionally they, They say is up on Mount Zion someplace We don't know that But it's traditional And He is going to walk from there, no doubt walking through the temple precincts. Now, during the feast, uh, the temple precincts were open 24 hours. And they had big uh, fires and all. The place was lit up. And so he's going to be walking through the temple precincts uh, on the way uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And and he's going to be, as they're walking Talking to the disciples now And uh, as they're on the way to the garden But I'm not going to talk to you much anymore For the prince of this world cometh And he hath nothing in me But that the world may know That I love the father And as the father has commanded me So I do Arise and let's go So the end of the supper Come on let's let's go Uh, But that the world may know that I love the Father, the obedience to the Father, to the will of the Father. Yes, he will be praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but yet submitting, nevertheless, not what I will, your will be done. Now, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he said. I'm going to prove that I love the Father by keeping His commandments by submitting to him that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Love is always proved by obedience to the desires of the one that you love. That's the proof of love. Submitting, obeying the desires of the one that you love. Much of what is called love today really isn't love. Much which is passed off for love isn't really love. True love submits to the desires and the wishes of the one that you love. That the world may know that I love the Father and as he gave me commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's the proof of it. This statement, the prince of this world cometh. Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. Originally, God created the earth, and thus it belonged to him. It was his by divine right of creation. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, and all they that dwell therein. But when God created man... He gave to Adam dominion over the earth, over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, every moving and creeping thing. I have given it to you, God said. So now for a time, the earth was man's to take care of, to enjoy. But when Adam sinned, eating of the forbidden fruit, He submitted unto Satan's will and Satan's suggestion. And know ye not to whomever you yield yourself, servants to obey, his servants you become. And so in yielding to Satan, Satan became the master of this world. And now Jesus addresses him as such, the prince of this world cometh. And he has nothing in me. At the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, actually before he began ministering, right after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, Satan took Jesus went in the wilderness and there fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards he was hungry, Satan came to him and said, "You know, command the stone to be made bread." And and then he took him to a high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all of these I will give to you and the glory of them if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus didn't say, you don't have them. They don't belong to you. They're mine. He acknowledged that Satan's offer was legitimate. You see, he had come to redeem the world back to God. He had come to pay the price of redemption Satan was saying you don't have to take God's path to the cross you can have immediate fulfillment I'll give it to you now just bow down and worship me same thing that Satan is saying to many people today you don't have to deny yourself and take up the cross you can have immediate fulfillment just worship me and he, and he holds out this attractive alternative of the world and so Jesus calls him the prince of this world. He's coming, but he said he has nothing in me. He doesn't have anything on me. He doesn't have any, you know, I'm going the way of the Father. I'm going to pay the price of redemption. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'll come and receive you unto myself. Don't let your heart be troubled. You've got a glorious future ahead of you. It's with me eternally. Let's turn now to John's Gospel, chapter 15, as we continue our journey through the Word. In verse 31 of chapter 14, Jesus is at the site of the Last Supper with his disciples. After the supper, they've been in discussion. As we were studying the 14th chapter, we find that they were asking Jesus questions and he was answering their questions, just sort of that fellowship after dinner around the table as you're just sort of talking about issues. But now Jesus in verse 31 said, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise and let us go hence Jesus was talking about his journey now to the cross that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father hath given me commandment even so I do arise and let's go he's going to the cross going first to the Garden of Gethsemane, where the soldiers will arrest him, take him to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and then to Pilate, then to the cross. In Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that though he was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, Yet he humbled himself, or emptied himself, and came in the form of a man. And as a servant, he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. As the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. The Father sent him in the world to become a sacrifice for our sins. This was the Father's commandment or will for his life. So we leave now the upper room. And beginning with the 15th chapter, Jesus begins his journey with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. It is possible that they passed through the Temple Mount area, During the feast of the Passover, the gates of the temple were left open. And on the gates of the temple, there were these golden grapes clustered uh, as ornamentation on the gate. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 80, the psalmist said, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt and you cast out the heathen and planted it. Talking about the nation of Israel that God brought out of Egypt and planted in the land of Canaan from which he had driven the heathen. It could be that as Jesus and his disciples were walking past the gates of the temple and saw these great golden grapes there on the temple, that this sort of sparked this particular discourse it is also possible that they were just passing down the slopes of ophel and that they were passing through some grape vineyards now on the 18th in the 18th chapter of john we read where they crossed the brook kidron and and then they started up Uh, on the other side, uh, under the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. So either on the slopes of the hillside, going down into the Kidron Valley, or perhaps the gate of the temple, Jesus said to them, I am the true vine. More literally from the Greek, I am the vine, the true, which would give the implication that there is a false vine, I am the vine, the true. Many of the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, all spoke of the nation of Israel as the vine. In Isaiah chapter 5, he said, Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out all of the stones thereof, and he planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the midst of it, and he also made a winepress therein, and he looked that it should bring forth fruit, grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, Judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done? Why is it that when I looked that it should bring forth grapes that it brought forth wild grapes? And go to, and I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge from it, and it shall be eaten up, And I will break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it will be pruned. It will not be pruned nor digged. But there shall come up briars and thorns, and I also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, and behold, there was oppression. He looked for righteousness. But behold, there was the cry of the oppressed. So uh, the nation of Israel, God said, that's my vineyard. But he was going to let it go waste. Now, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, Jeremiah said, Yet I have planted thee, God is speaking to Israel, I have planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed, how then are you turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Hosea 10.1 said, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased his altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images." In Matthew's gospel, Jesus picked up the parable of the vineyard and he said there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and he put a hedge around it and he digged a wine press in it and he built a tower and then he let it out to husbandmen and he went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandman that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same. And so Jesus then said... uh that the householder then said, I will send my only son. Surely they will respect him. But when the husbandman saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, let's kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And so they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And when the Lord thereof of the vineyard comes, Jesus said, what will he do to those husbandmen? And they said unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men, and he will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. So Jesus is speaking of the nation of Israel, God's vineyard. He wanted the fruit. God sent the prophets The husbandmen were actually the religious leaders that were supposed to be developing the people's relationship with God so that they could bring forth fruit unto God, unto the praise of God. But the religious leaders had become corrupted. So God sent his prophets. Some of them they stoned, others they imprisoned. And so then the only son of course would be Jesus God said I'll send my only son they'll respect him but they said let's kill him and then the vineyard will be ours so they slew him he said what will then the house the husband or the householder do the lord and they said he will cast out those miserable husbandmen he'll let out his vineyard to others so that Jesus is now saying that he, that he is the true vine, the Father is the husbandman, and that now you, the church, the disciples, you will now become God's vineyard. You will become the branches. You will become that which will bear the fruit that the Father is seeking. So I am the true vine. My Father is the husbandman. It's been taken away from those who He had given it to, and now the Father takes the responsibility of developing the vineyard. And every branch in me that beareth not fruit, He taketh away. That is the pruning, the cutting off of those branches that don't bear fruit. But every branch that bears fruit, he then cleanses it or purges it that it might bring forth more fruit. The purpose of God for your life is that you bring forth fruit that is pleasing unto God. If you don't bring forth fruit... Then Jesus said you will be cut off Every branch of me that bringeth forth not fruit He taketh away It's cut off But if you're bearing fruit Then the Lord wants you to bring forth more fruit And so he begins that cleansing process Now you are clean, Jesus said in the next verse Through the word that I have spoken unto you The word of God, a cleansing power in our lives, keeping us from sin, guiding us in the path of God, helping us that we might bear more fruit as we are washed and cleansed by the word. Jesus said, abide in me, the process by which I can bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. That is declaring again that the fruit that God wants from our life is not something that we can produce ourselves. I think that many times we feel sort of an obligation to do, to perform, to bring forth works unto God that we might be pleasing to him as the result of our efforts and our works. It's interesting that in Galatians 5, as Paul is writing to the Galatians, He contrasts work with fruits. Now, the works of the flesh are these. And he gives you that long list of the works of the flesh. But then he says, but, in contrast to the works, the fruit of the Spirit. So, the fruit is contrasted with works. Now, God isn't interested in works our works of righteousness. God is interested that we bear fruit. And fruit comes from a relationship. Abiding in Christ, Christ abiding in me, the natural result of that is going to be my life is going to bring forth the fruit that the Father desires. It comes automatically by abiding In Christ Now Jesus is saying to his disciples I am the vine And you are the branches In the Old Testament God had planted the vine The nation of Israel In a goodly field Did everything necessary That it would bring forth fruit Nurtured it Took care of it Watched over it But it only brought forth wild grapes Now Jesus is declaring, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And so the responsibility of bringing the fruit that God wants is now upon us, the branches. And he that abideth in me, Jesus said, and I in him, the same will bring forth much fruit. Again, the secret is abiding in Christ, and Christ abiding in you you will begin to bring forth much fruit. And then again, for without me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, there's not one thing that you can do that is pleasing or acceptable unto the Father. You can do nothing to please God apart from Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, then if a man abides not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. The nation of Israel did not bring forth the fruit. Uh, The prophet Isaiah spoke of them as, as the vine, he said, was, was burned, but he said it's not really good for even burning. Grape, uh, what can you do with a, With a, with a, the wood of a grape? I mean, uh, he said you can't make a peg out of it. It's it's brittle, and it it. He said it it's only good for the fire, and it's not even good in the fire. It sort of burns like a punk, and so uh, he said it's just you know of of no value. Now, Jesus said, if a man abides not in me, is it possible for a man not to abide in Christ? Evidently so, or Jesus would not have even brought up the issue. If a man abides not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them, And they cast them into the fire and they are burned. But if you abide in me. So, rather than getting into the theological aspects or debate, just abide in Christ and there's no problem. (laughs) You don't have to worry about the issues. And for one, I have no intention of ever doing anything but just abiding in him. Because I know that apart from him, I can do nothing. He is my life. He's everything. And thus, abiding in him is all important to me. And I have no intention of ever doing anything other than that. So if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now... Here he is saying, if my words, later, earlier he said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, then we, you'll bring forth much fruit. Now if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, here in the final discourse that Jesus has with his disciples, he's giving to them Some extremely broad promises concerning prayer. Back in the 14th chapter, verse 13, he said, And whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, that will I do. That whatsoever, I mean, that's pretty broad. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, that will I do that the Father might be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything, anything is a pretty broad term. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now he is giving some limitations. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, You can ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Now, there are those who take these broad promises of Jesus concerning prayer and they twist them and they teach that you can have anything you want. And they are speaking now, Generally, in a fleshly kind of carnal way, that is, you can have any kind of carnal desire that you might have for a sports car or for a big bank account or for a yacht or, you know, any of these things to consume on your own lust. And, and that's not what Jesus is saying If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, then you can ask whatever you will. But it follows that what I ask will be in harmony with him and his will. Because to be a disciple of Jesus, the first thing I have to do is deny self. So these promises, these broad promises that Jesus makes concerning prayer is not opening the door for prayer to be a means of accomplishing selfish ends. But there are doors open to accomplish the purposes of God that now become the chief desire of my heart. The psalmist said, "'Delight thyself also in the Lord.'" And he will give you the desires of your heart. That's been misinterpreted or misquoted in a way. If you delight yourself in the Lord, the psalmist isn't saying he's going to give you the fleshly desires of your heart. But he will give you the desires of your heart. That is, he will put his desire in your heart. If you delight yourself in the Lord, he then plants his desires In your heart God said to Jeremiah The day is coming Saith the Lord When I will no longer write my law On the tables of stone But I will write them In the fleshly tablets of the heart So God inscribes His law His will His purpose in my heart He makes that my longing My desire That's why Doing the will of the Lord is such a pleasurable, exciting thing because he has first of all worked in me, planting his desire in my heart, making that the longing of my heart. Oh, I wish I could live in Hawaii. (laughs) And so where did that desire come from? Well, be careful now. This one's tough. (laughs) But you don't know. You see, it could be that God has put that desire there because he's calling you to Hawaii. So be open. (laughs) But be careful. (laughs) Make sure you really, you know, have discernment on this one. Uh, I would have to confess it would be very hard for me to have discernment. But it's wonderful how God does work and prepares our hearts for that which he wants for us to do. People oftentimes have a very false sense of the will of God as though God's will is something that is awful, terrifying. And so I've heard say, be careful, you know, If you say anywhere, God, you just might, you know, find yourself in some jungle filled with all kinds of poisonous reptiles and parasites and everything else, you know. And So you've got to be careful when you, you know, say, Lord, your will be done. As though God is going to then make you do some Horrible, terrifying thing that is going to just put your life in, in, in total terror, living in fear and terror. If God is going to call you to, say, Irian Jaya or New Guinea, to work among the native people there, you can be sure that he will, first of all, give you a desire and a longing and an intense interest in bugs. (laughs) My son Jeff and I were in Erie and Jaya, and we met a couple of young men there. In fact, we flew in to the mission station of this one young fellow, good-looking fellow, had two small children, brilliant fellow, college degree. When we, he's 120 miles from the closest road. So we had to fly in. And the pilot buzzed the field once to see What direction the wind socket was Because you can only land one direction If the wind socket isn't for you You just have to come on out But the wind socket was coming downhill So we were able to land But the fact that we had buzzed the field once By the time we landed Both sides of the runway were lined With the the naked natives Who when the plane stopped, came rushing up to the plane, and they greeted us very warmly. They later showed us around the village. Beautiful spot up in this canyon. There are two streams that converge. Beautiful, crystal clear water. And uh, he showed us the little uh, water system that he had developed for his house. Where he piped it from upstream, where he had the gravity flow of this crystal clear water into his house. And uh, he turned to us and his face was just beaming. And he says, Tell me, tell me. Look what happens when you yield yourself to the will of God. He puts you in the most beautiful spot in the whole world to raise kids. He said, This place is fabulous. I mean, he was absolutely in love with it. And that's what God does. He plants his desires in your heart. So with Jesus, you can say, I delight to do thy will, O Lord. Another fellow that we met at that same conference is 35 miles from the nearest road. When he wants to go to the store, he has to walk 35 miles to get a new light bulb, but they don't have lights out there, but uh, (laughs) to get a can of tuna or whatever. Now, this fellow was from this area, Garden Grove. Loved to surf, Huntington Beach. And walking from his village to the nearest town, He has to walk along the beach, 35 miles. He said, the most gorgeous surf in the world. (laughs) And so he said, I have my little Walkman. I put on the Maranatha praise tapes. And he said, it is just heaven. Walking along the beautiful beach, seeing the beautiful surf, and just praising God and And listening to the praise music, he said, I'm in the closest place to heaven as you can get. You see, God puts these things in your heart. And then when he places you there, you think, this can't be the will of God. This is too nice. (laughs) This is too good. But that's because Satan has, has given this false concept concerning God's will that the will of God is the most miserable place in the world. That's not so. The will of God is the most blessed place in the world. Walking in the will of God is is glorious. And so, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he is telling them, You can ask whatever you will, but the thing is, your will is now his will. He has planted his will in your heart. And thus, when you ask according to his will, as John later says in his epistle, he hears us, and if he hears us, we have received that which we have asked of him. So, herein is my Father glorified, verse 8, that you bear much fruit. That's what God is looking for from your life, that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. Now, earlier he said uh, that you're to love one another as I have loved you, and by this sign the world will know that you are my disciples. And now when you're bringing forth much fruit, then you'll know that you are his disciple. As the Father, he said, has loved me, so have I loved you, Continue in my love. Now, he's. if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. (laughs) In keeping the commandments, he's relating the keeping of the commandments to loving, to abiding in his love. And that basically is his commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another. And so, if you keep the commandments, then you abide in his love. These things he said, I've spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Now, he is about to face the cross, and he knows it. He knows this ugly experience that he'll be going through tomorrow. What's well, actually because their day starts at, at sundown before this day is over uh, Before the sun goes down tomorrow He will have been killed upon a cross He will have been mocked uh, Jeered uh, Buffeted Scourged uh, Insulted um, Humiliated He knew all that he was going to go through And what's he talking about? My joy Now In In the book of Hebrews, we read, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. His joy was the redemption of man. His joy is that ability to say to you, your sins are forgiven. Enter into the joy of the Lord to receive you into the kingdom of God. That's his joy. And for that joy, he endured the cross, though he despised the shame. So now, facing the cross, he is speaking of my joy, that it might remain in you, and that your joy may be full, that you might have fullness of joy. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Paul gives one rule for marriage to the husbands, and that is love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's a pretty incredible love as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's a self-sacrificing love. A selfless love. A complete love. In a little bit, he's going to say, greater love has no man than this, and a man will lay down his life for his friends, and then he laid down his life for us. So that's how husbands are to love their wives, but that's how we're to love each other. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now again as we go to 1 Corinthians 13 the kind of love he is talking about is described there. It's also described in Galatians 5:22 where Paul, speaking of the fruit of the Spirit. The Father wants you to bear fruit. He wants you to bear much fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, which manifests itself in joy and in peace and in patience, long-suffering, in gentleness, in meekness, in goodness, in faithfulness, in temperance. And that's how God wants you to be. Now, you can't be that. Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do it. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. But if you're abiding in Christ and Christ's word is abiding in you, then this should be the evidence of your relationship with him in that your life begins to bring forth much fruit. You are being transformed by that work of the Holy Spirit within your life, and your life begins to bring forth the fruit that the Father desires from us. So greater love has no man than this. This is the kind of love that he had for us, that a man will lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. The proof of the friendship, obedience to his command. And his command, love one another as I have loved you. So he said, from now on, I'm not going to call you slaves. For the slave doesn't know what the Lord is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my father, I've made known unto you. So I'm going to call you now my friends, not my slaves. You're my friends. It's interesting, though, that each of them as they referred to themselves in their later writings, referred to themselves as slave. Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, and James, a servant of Jesus or bond slave of Jesus Christ, and Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, Peter, a bondservant. They, they referred to themselves still as bondservants, but the Lord said, I'm going to call you my friends. And then he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And ordained. You that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So, divine election. You haven't chosen me, I chose you. Jesus called them. Jesus went, was going by the Sea of Galilee, saw a couple of fellows. As they were washing their nets And he said come and follow me I'll make you fishers of men I chose you Went a little further Two fellows mending their nets And he said come and follow me And they left their nets and followed him He chose them He called Matthew from his place at the customs He was a custom officer And he said follow me And Matthew left the custom booth And he
0: followed Jesus He said I've chosen you We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the Gospel of John in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the friends of Jesus. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 14 through 15 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at the wordfortoday.org If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673.
1: Father, we thank you for the hope that we have In Christ Jesus tonight And for these words of comfort from Jesus To those with troubled hearts Those who are worried about the future Those that don't know about tomorrow Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit Who's come alongside Who has been sent alongside of us to help us We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us We thank you, Lord, for the way you've just manifested yourself to us in so many special ways. Thank you, Lord, for your peace, your love. How blessed we are.
0: This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California.
1: Do you want to know a great story about gang members, drug addicts, mental patients, society's rejects, and how God turned their lives around to use them mightily? It's all right here in the book Harvest. Join Pastor Chuck Smith as he tells the story of how God transformed the lives of 10 men to reach the world. Read the testimonies of Greg Laurie, Raul Reese, Mike McIntosh, John Corson, Skip Heitzick, and others. And see for yourself that if God can use these guys to spread the gospel worldwide, then God can use you too. To read a sneak preview of the book online, visit thewordfortoday.org or call The Word for Today at 800 800- 272-W-O-R-D. I want to encourage you to check it out. This just might be the book to change the life of a loved one
0: or even you. Visit the wordfortoday.org.